guys, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 um, to get started. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 17 through 21. So turn there for a moment, and I just want to uh, do a little bit of, uh, of review. Um, okay, so uh, we have spoken about this at length many times, but I want to... Uh, touch briefly on how the scriptures work, okay? The scriptures work like a shadow. Um, The scriptures are like a shadow in that the Old Covenant and the things of the Old Covenant kind of have the shape, right? The shape and the form of the New Covenant, but but not necessarily the substance, right? But but the way we work with the Old Testament is we sort of trace the shadow of the substance that is the New Covenant, and it is by way of that shadow-substance relationship that we understand what we're called to, okay? And we understand what Christ means when he says things, and we understand who Christ is and what he did, okay? So just quickly... I'm going to show you how this relationship works. Jesus is like David, right? Jesus is the son of David, okay? And if, and if, you, uh, if, you, if you marched with me through the text of Samuel, we talked about this a lot. Jesus, Jesus is like David, or rather, David is like Jesus. David has the shape of Jesus, right? And so we, we see David in scenes like the Goliath scene. You see him laying down his life, risking his life to to overcome the great enemy of the people of Israel. And we see in that shape a picture of Jesus. But Jesus is better than David, right? Jesus Jesus doesn't merely go and fight a living, breathing, tall guy to save us one time, right? Jesus, Jesus lays down his life to slay the great oppressor of the people of God. Jesus lays down his life to free his people from their adversary and from their sin, right? So Jesus is like David in a way, but he's better than David. In the same way, the kingdom of God is like the kingdom of Israel, but it's better than the kingdom of Israel, right? Like, so, so when God rescued his people, he rescued them out of slavery, And he rescued them out of slavery on Passover, right? So he slayed a lamb in order to cover their sins and protect them from the the passing angel of death, right? And, and 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 he walks carefully with them through the wilderness into the kingdom where they're free and they have a land of their own. That is the shape of the coming kingdom of God, right? But we aren't merely saved from a physical slavery, Right? We're not merely saved temporarily to go live the rest of our days in a better physical place. Right? We're saved from our sin, and we're, we're given freedom. And he walks carefully with us through the wilderness, and we have an eye on the promised land, right? an, an, an eternal home. Okay? So the kingdom of God is like the kingdom of Israel, but the kingdom of God is, is, is better than the kingdom of Israel. And in the same way, the law of Christ is like the law of Moses, but the law of Christ is better than the law of Moses. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Now, something I haven't really highlighted yet is this dynamic that we're going to see play out 
in, in three dimensions really explicitly in the book of Matthew, which is you must trace the shadow of the scriptures. You must trace the shadow to the substance or you'll find yourself an enemy of the author of the scriptures, right? If you don't recognize that the relationship between old covenant and new is one of shadow and substance and you just cling to that shadow and you say, no, no, I want the shadow. I don't care about the substance. You find yourself face to face with King Jesus in opposition to him. Okay, and we're going to see this dynamic play out all the time in Matthew. Okay, now I want to show you how this uh, dynamic is touched on in, uh, in, in Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you will turn, if you haven't already turned to Matthew 5.17, and let's read it together. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, not until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to read that again. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay. So Jesus says, if you do the law, I know this is making you uncomfortable, even as I read these words. Jesus says, if you do the law, and if you teach the law, you'll be called great in the greatest kingdom the world will ever ever know. Okay? If you do and teach the law, you'll be called great in the greatest kingdom the world will ever know. However, if you relax the law, and if you teach others to do the same, you'll be called least in the kingdom, in the greatest kingdom the world will ever know. Okay. That's a huge deal. Okay? That's a huge deal. Why? Because your reputation in the kingdom hinges on how you relate to the law. Now, I need to be honest with you. I, I try and summarize paragraphs in the scriptures. I try and summarize paragraphs in the scriptures into single sentences to help me understand the flow of thought. And this was my single sentence summary of Christ's words. And as soon as I wrote this down, I was extraordinarily uncomfortable. I was extraordinarily uncomfortable. However, you try and make that paragraph mean something else. Your reputation, whether you're called great in the kingdom or least in the kingdom, your reputation in the kingdom hinges on how you relate to the law. Okay. So it's an imperative for us to ask, how do you do the law? Right? How... How do you do 
the law. And, and by the way, didn't Paul tell us not to do the law? Right? Didn't, how do you do the law as Christ is telling you to do the law? And, and didn't Paul tell us not to do the law? So what, it, what is going on here? All right, I'm going to go about this two ways. One, I want to answer the question how not to do the law. Okay? We're going to talk about how not to do, do the law first. And then we can deal with the actual doing of it. Okay? So Paul tells us how not to do the law in Galatians. Galatians 3. Let me read this to you. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Okay, I'm going to reread that first sentence All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So, in other words, the law is a curse to those who rely on it for justification. Okay? The law is a curse to those who rely on it for justification. Justification. What does that mean? If your doing of the law is intended to present yourself by the merit of your own righteousness before the king and say, look, look, God, look at all of my good works. I have earned a place in this kingdom. That law is a curse for you. You are not justified by your doing of the law. You are justified by Christ's doing of the law and by bearing your penalty for not doing the law. That's how you're justified. And as soon as you turn to the law to start presenting yourself in your own righteousness before God, you are doomed. Okay? Following me? Okay. Jesus says something similar in the passage we just read. He said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What was the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees like? Self-righteousness. Look at me. If anybody's worthy of the kingdom, it's me. Look at how I tithe, even in my herbs. Right? Look at how I pray before all the people. Look at how I fast at least once a week. Right? Relying on the works of the law to appear before God justified is a curse. A curse that the scribes and the Pharisees bore willingly and proudly. God said, they will never have a place in my kingdom. So, if you do the law to be righteous before God, you've got no place in the kingdom. If you do the law to be righteous before God, you've got no place in the kingdom. 
Treating the law that way is a rejection of the law's purpose, and it's a rejection of the law's fulfillment, and then it sets you in opposition to Jesus. What you're saying is, I don't want the substance, I want the shadow. Right? I don't want the substance, I want the shadow. I don't care if the law was meant to point me to Jesus, who is my righteousness. Right? And as soon as you embrace the shadow and reject the substance, you find yourself face to face with King Jesus. Christ's greatest enemies rejected the fulfillment of the old covenant's shadows. Christ's greatest enemies rejected the fulfillment of the old covenant's shadows. We're going to see this play out. And sometimes you're going to think, wow, Jesus, isn't that harsh? When he's talking about the Pharisees. When he's talking about the scribes. You're going to think, wow, yikes. That's intense. But do you know why? Because that's how Christ treats his enemies. Right? The Pharisees said, no, we'll have the shadow, thank you very much. And Christ says, okay. Christ's enemies didn't want a better David. They wanted David. What did the Pharisees and scribes look forward to? A physical king in a physical kingdom who would take out their physical enemies, right? They want the shadow. They're longing for the shadow. And they didn't want a better kingdom. They wanted the kingdom of Israel. You can actually see the tension developing in the disciples because they didn't want the substance very much either. So when Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to lay down his life, Peter's like, not you, Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Right? What do the greatest enemies of Jesus do? They cling to the shadow. Okay. And in the same way, they didn't want the law of Christ. They wanted the law of Moses. Relying on their own works for justification. Okay. So, to reject the law's fulfillment in Jesus is to reject the kingdom of Jesus. If you don't see the law pointing towards Christ and Christ's people fulfilling the spirit of the law, then you don't actually want the kingdom. Okay? Okay, now, so, are we, are, we, are we clear that that's how not to do? That's how not to do the law, okay? We are absolutely required to do the law, right? It, it, that's explicit in Matthew 5. We are absolutely required to do the law, but we are absolutely forbidden from relying on the, on the law for justification. Okay, everybody tracking so far? Okay, so then, the question remains, how do we do the law? How do do I do the law? And the answer, spiritually. Spiritually is how you do the law. Or, maybe a fuller answer is, you embody the spirit of the law by the power of the spirit of God. Okay? That's how you do the law. You are called to do the law... You must heed Jesus' instructions to do and teach the law. Your reputation in the kingdom hinges on it. And how do you do it? You embody the spirit of the law by the power of the spirit of God. All right, let me show you where this is coming from. By the way, I am indebted at this point to 
uh, a sermon by, you guessed it, John Piper. I'm always calling out John Piper. Um, and, you know, sometimes you guys, I'll, I'll tell you the name of the sermon first. It's uh, how do we fulfill the right, or how do we fulfill the righteousness of the law in Romans 8, 3 through 4, 12 theses. I'm not kidding. That's the name of the sermon. How do we fulfill the righteousness of the law in Romans 8, 3 through 4, 12 theses. Now, sometimes you give us a hard time, guys, about going real deep and talking at length about theological issues, but I have never titled a sermon 12 theses about anything. So you're welcome. All right, so let let me read you Romans 8. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now I've got to deal with something here. Some people read this and they think, that what's happening in this passage is that just like in Romans 5.19, Jesus has fulfilled on our behalf the righteousness of the law. And that's all throughout Romans. But I don't think that's what's happening here. Because Paul says, in order that the righteousness, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, not for us, but in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Our walking by the Spirit is the fulfillment of the righteous requirement of the law. Now, now let's circle back to how not to do the law. We are not justified before God by our righteous fulfillment of the Spirit of the law by way of the Spirit. We're justified before God because Christ has already done it. Right? Christ has already fulfilled the law on our behalf, and we wear his righteousness. However, wearing his righteousness, we have been given the gift of the Spirit. And as the Spirit embody, as the Spirit fills his people, they will walk according to the instructions of Christ, according to the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is the spiritual embodiment of the law of Moses. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's something very cool here. This this very cool Trinitarian dynamic that's happening is that the Father gave the law, right? And, And the Son fulfills the law, and then the Spirit empowers His people to embody the law, okay? The Father gave the law, the Son fulfills the law, the Spirit empowers His people to do it. And this is not an addition uh, that the New Testament has to make. This is prophesied a handful of times in the Old Testament. Let me read one of them. This, This is in Jeremiah 31. Thank you, Brad, for pointing this out to me. I really appreciate it. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law where? within them, and I will write it on their hearts. How? How does that happen? By the power of the Holy Spirit. 
I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The hope of the old covenant, I will be their God and they will be my people. The hope that was crushed by sin is fulfilled in the new covenant by the power of the Spirit. Amen? The law of Christ is the law written on the heart of Christ's people. Now listen, their spirit-empowered love and obedience is the spiritual fulfillment of the law. How do you do the law? You do it by the Spirit. Okay? Now if you're in Christ, you've been given the Spirit. Okay? If you're in Christ, when you made that confession, just like Jed did, when you made that confession, you were born again, right? And you were sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your coming inheritance. The Spirit's presence in your life is a guarantee that that you will be raised together with Christ and you will inherit with Him the kingdom of heaven. So you've been given the, the Spirit. And, and this is, this, is, this is an important emphasis, to the degree that you walk in Him. To the degree that you walk with the Spirit, you'll do the law. To the degree that you walk with the Spirit, you will do the law. I want to touch on something that I think is implied a lot in our circles. And I don't think we've done enough to address it. You haven't been given the Spirit Once does not mean that you're walking every day in the fullness of the Spirit. Okay? Your having been given the Spirit once does not mean that you're walking every day in the fullness of the Spirit. I'll just give you a very quick proof. How do they choose the deacons? I mean, they didn't call them deacons yet. Early church, there's a problem in the early church, and the apostles are like, look, we've got to search the Scriptures and pray. So choose among you what? meant full of the Spirit, right? Now, how is that helpful if every single Christian all the time is full of the Holy Spirit? Why don't you just randomly choose seven guys? This dynamic is all throughout the New Testament. The way you relate to the Spirit can either be grieving Him or walking in the fullness of Him. Okay? I'm going to we throw that out there and we'll touch, touch on it at the application. But one question before we do so. What are you leaving on the table? Every morning you wake up bathing in the new mercies of God with an invitation to open your word and hear Him speak. And with an invitation to dwell in the throne room of grace in prayer with an invitation to plead and to seek, knowing that he has promised to show himself to those who seek him. You have the opportunity every day to walk in the fullness of the Spirit. It's on the table. What do you do instead? Are you leaving that on the table? Are you busy with work? You just exhausted at the end of the day? Want to binge some Netflix? What are you doing with that invitation? What are you leaving on the table? 
That, that hurts me as much as it hurts you. Okay? All right. We'll, we'll circle back to that. Be filled with the Spirit. Do and teach the law. That is kind of the point of, of Matthew 5, 17 through 21. Now, I want to address a question that's been raised to me on three different occasions since the last time we talked about the law last month. Which laws? Which laws do we do? Right? That's the wrong question. Okay? I'm going to tell you why it's the wrong question. First, in the text. Listen to Jesus' words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to ab- not to abolish them, but to fulfill some of them. That's not what it says. Read your Bibles, guys. Don't trust me. I say crazy stuff sometimes. All right? Not, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then what he says, until heaven and earth pass away, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. How much of the law did Christ come to fulfill? All of it. Okay, okay. Christ fulfills all the law. All right, now, keep reading. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. How much of the law are you called to do? All of it. So it's not a matter of which laws you do. It's a matter of how. It isn't a matter of which laws you do. It's a matter of how. Now, I don't have time to comprehensively flip through the law and talk about how we do each of these things. But I want to touch on a few moments in the law that make us go, ah, do we do that anymore? And I want to try and address some of that. Okay. We do sacrifice. Christ, indeed, has fulfilled the sacrifices of the law. And yet, we do it. Let me explain. The law calls the people of God to confess their sin and to be cleansed by the blood sacrificed of the high priest. Right? Sacrifice is the means by which the people of Israel are reconciled to God and and have fellowship with Him and have peace with Him. Right? Let me read you from 1 John. If we confess our sin... This is written to Christians... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Tell me as a Christian that you have no need for the ministry of the high priest. The sacrifices of the law were a shadow. And the substance is your intimate relationship with the high priest who invites you to come and to confess your sins. And he will forgive you by way of the blood of Jesus, and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We do sacrifice. We do circumcision. Well, you say, I don't know, I've read Paul, we don't do circumcision anymore. Read your Bible, Ben. We do circumcision. The law calls the people of God to walk in holiness by cutting off the flesh. Let me read you something profound. In Jesus' You were circumcised 
with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having having buried with him in baptism in which you are raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Do you know what we saw this morning? We saw Jed identifying with the circumcision of Christ, the, the putting off of the flesh, right? The circumcision in, in the old covenant was a shadow, and the substance belongs to Christ. Amen? Okay. We do Sabbath. We do Sabbath. Okay, how? The law calls the people of God to stop toiling and to rest and reflect on God's finished work. Stop toiling and rest and reflect on God's finished work. Let me read you from Hebrews. Hebrews 4. We who believed enter his rest. We who believed enter his rest. And then further on in the chapter, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. Do you know why the gospel is good news? Do you know how Jesus could go and say, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Because all the toiling to present yourself righteous before God by your own works is over. Right? It's over in Jesus. Okay. We do purity. We do purity. The law calls the people of God to radical purity and holy distinction from the nations around them. Is that gone? Is that gone? I think the last three chili cook-offs, Brian Walker's put bacon or something in his uh, chili. Maybe that was somebody else. But like, we don't do purity anymore. Is that that the thing? No. Purity legislation in the law was a shadow of the purity that we are called to as Christians. Let me show you. In Timothy, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel of for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from what? A pure heart. We do purity. We do feasts. What are the feasts? How do the feasts have any relationship to to your day-to-day, right? The law calls the people of God to gather together. This is an easy one. You don't even need my help. The law calls yourself to, to, calls the people of God to, to gather and celebrate the grace and might of God who redeemed them from slavery, to remember every moment of his gracious work to rescue them from chains, Right? And to walk them carefully through the wilderness and deliver them into the coming kingdom. And to remember the Passover lamb that was slaughtered on our behalf. Right? We do feasts. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. What do we do here? Why do we do this at the table every week? Why spend our time breaking bread and drinking together? Because we're remembering the slaughter of the Passover lamb and we're looking forward to the coming kingdom. By, by, whose, by the Passover lamb's, lamb's blood, we are welcome into it. Okay? We do feasts. And not just the table. Every time we gather the body together here at church and we proclaim the majesty of God to rescue and redeem, we proclaim His, His goodness and His patience and His grace towards us who stumble and yet He still welcomes us into His kingdom. That is a feast and a celebration of the grace of God. The, the feasts were a shadow. The church is the substance. Okay. And I'm going to touch on these two other things really quickly, but just know that as we work through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see how we do justice and we do mercy. Okay? Not very many Christians trip over the moral call of the law. It's all moral. It's a false distinction, but some people will say, well, yeah, sure, we're not supposed to murder. Sure, we're not supposed to commit adultery. Um, but, but these sacrifice things, we don't do that anymore. Well, well, look, the rest of the sermon is going to teach us how to walk in the substance of the call to justice and mercy. Okay? So we're going to deal with this comprehensively. But the law calls the people of God to fair and just dealings, and so does the new covenant, but fuller and better. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And then finally, mercy. We do mercy. The law calls the people of God to compassionate and merciful acts of kindness to the sojourner and the needy. We do mercy. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The reason you will not ever once as a Christian have nothing to do is because there are people around you carrying heavy burdens. And the way you embody the love of Christ and the way you embody the law is to pick them up off their shoulders and to carry them yourself. Okay. So let's talk really briefly about how this doing and teaching of the law should change your life. Okay. First, stop blowing past the law. I know, I know when you get to like numbers, you start to skim. Okay? It makes sense. It's a long book. Look, the law is helpful to the people of God as a shadow that points us to the substance. Right? And if you see elements of the shadow that point to Elements of the substance that aren't a part of your faith and practice. The Spirit can use that to change the way you relate to everyone. I'm mindful of the sojourner passages. Not many years ago, we had a crisis in our culture to figure out how to relate to refugees. There are sojourner passages that, that are a shadow to the substance that might help frame that conversation. Okay? So don't blow, don't blow past it. It's, it's God's word. We need it. Okay, two. 
Christ did not call you to relax. If you want evidence that we are not a seeker-sensitive church, this application point is one of them. Uh, I think it's interesting that, that, that Christ uses the word, well, the Aramaic equivalent of the word remax, or relax, um, because often in immature presentations of the gospel, in an immature discipleship relationship, you're taught to relax because Christ has already done it all. That is not your call. Now, you are called to rest in God because of the work that Christ has done on your behalf. But, but what is Christian discipleship other than fervent energy following the, the model of Christ? Right? Pouring yourself out like an offering on people. Right? Carry your cross. What does that mean? It means, it means die. Right? The law calls you to work by the grace of God, by the, by the fulfillment of Christ, and by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. You are called to do justice and to do mercy and to proclaim the gospel news and an invitation to your community and your neighbors and the nations. And you're called to bear one another's burdens. The lost call is a call for you. And you don't want to relax. You only have so many days left. Your reputation hinges on how you relate to the law of Christ. Okay. Third, I've kind of hit on this pretty hard. Your doing should have nothing to do with your standing. Okay. Your doing of the law should have nothing to do with your standing before God. You will fall on your face. If you're following Jesus appropriately, you will fall on your face. In fact, sometimes he allows us to fall on our face so that we can see how desperate we need him, how desperately we need him, right? And your doing of the law of Christ, your fulfillment of the law of Moses by way of the Spirit will lead you to moments where you find yourself failing, You know what we do in that moment? We say, praise God for the blood of Jesus because I stand before God justified. Amen? Don't let your doing even remotely become associated with your standing. That's a curse. That's a curse. If you play that in the other direction, don't judge the doing of others and just assume they're standing. Okay? Make sense? In Christ, you're standing before God, and you're doing of the law are two separate silos. Okay? Okay. This is implied, I think, in the passage. I just want to highlight it. What you do, you'll teach. Christ doesn't actually have a category for somebody who's doing or relaxing and not teaching others to do the same. Did you notice? Right? Like, on the one hand is the relaxer who's teaching others to relax, and on the other hand is the doer who's teaching others to do. In your doing or relaxing, you will be displaying a model that others will see and follow. Okay? Take that home. 
Think about how you're doing or relaxing at home. Beware. Or be encouraged. Amen? Finally, keep in step with the Spirit. Drink deeply of the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. I know you're thinking, who let the charismatic in the back door? I I know you're thinking that. But I specifically chose this language because this is Paul's language in three different letters. 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. Okay? If you want to do the law, you cannot do it except by the power of the Spirit. So step one to doing the law with the kingdom in mind is to walk intimately with the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's it's not a magical way to do this. You know the way to do this. But I don't want you to disassociate our constant calls to to dive deep in the scriptures and our constant calls to have a life characterized by prayer and our constant calls to work fervently in discipline. I don't want you to dissociate those calls from the implied because that's the way you walk intimately with the Spirit. Make sense? Okay. So, take this to the table. Let's do the law right now by feasting and celebrating the work of Christ who has already done and fulfilled the law on our behalf. Amen?